0: This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clarke. not everyone loves the cosmos, by which I mean our literal universe, that staggering expanse of potent void, some 93 billion light-years in observable diameter, around 13 billion years young, in which little old Earth, third planet from one of the tens of millions of stars in the Orion Cygnus arm of the Milky Way galaxy, is but a blip in the infinities of space-time as we know them. This aversion to outer space baffled me the first few times I came across it, but then again I've been a science and space junkie for as long as I can remember, so of course it was difficult to understand how anyone could look up at a full night sky, maybe with a few familiar constellations gleaming, maybe with the wide streak of our galaxy in unmistakable view, and hate it. But it happens, it's true. I've known people who tell me they can't bear to look at the night sky or think too much about the universe because even the idea of its limitless reach fills them with dread. We have some contemporary words for this reaction, like astrophobia, fear of space, and cosmicophobia, fear of cosmic phenomena, and aperaphobia, fear of the infinite. But all of these terms treat the reaction, as I originally did, as something pathological, a condition, an aberration, instead of part of a coherent emotional landscape. And yes, we have words for that fuller landscape too. Sometimes my English students ask me why the words awesome and awful usually hold completely opposite meanings, yet awfully can be used as both a positive and a negative. As in, oh, that was awfully nice of you, and oh, it's been an awfully long time since we last spoke. I mean, the short answer is that English is a mess, and that whatever aesthetic beauty the language has is closer kin to the charm of musty book piles that have haphazardly accreted over the decades in second-hand shops than to the immaculate regality of a well-maintained showroom library. But then the literary geek in me gets excited, because now I get to share something that even many native English speakers don't know, which is that awesome and awful are not different words, not really. It's just that the once standard definition of awe, A W E, not awe, A W W, isn't as well understood these days. Over time, Out of various efficiencies of everyday use, we've taken a complex concept which originally encapsulated a wealth of coexisting emotions and flattened it into a few discrete words that represent distinct emotional states. Maybe the best way to talk about awe, though, is to talk about the sublime, which is a sentiment best associated with the romantics of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, which often takes awe as an impoverished synonym. The romantics often reveled in the idea that the sublime represented a realm of experience beyond what any human could ever fully articulate, but which all humans knew intimately when the feeling was upon them, a juxtaposition of emotion in the throes of transcendence, a sense of being elevated into a heightened state of wonder and fear, reverence and dread, delight and horror unsurprisingly awe and the sublime have strong spiritual associations because for millennia what better manifestation of transcendence could there be if not the spirit realm the realm of divinity the realm of whatever might lie beyond the veil of nature when faced with the god of abraham in particular a being routinely described as both wrathful and loving beyond all measure one was meant to experience dualities of response a twinned adoration and terror at the extraordinary power and scope of the divine. Look at its vastness. Look at my smallness. But as our understanding of the age and extent of the cosmos deepened, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, writers on the sublime routinely used outer space as a domain for these twinned feelings of admiration and despair. Some even imagined being guided out by angels to explore the broader providence of the Christian God, to places in distant fields of starshine and void where their mere mortal forms could do little but tremble at how mighty and how terrifying were the works of the Creator in all the far-flung corners of His creation. In a more openly secular and empirical world, like the one we have today, People like me, people who delight at the thought of the cosmos and who are endlessly excited about scientific discoveries in extraterrestrial domains often react with bafflement and frustration toward people who, for many reasons, would much rather keep their thoughts a bit closer to Earth. Thank you very much. And yet, in the process, we sometimes forget the lessons we should be learning from the other side of awe. When we put our love of outer space over our interest in paying attention to and learning from our fellow human beings, we neglect an equally important universe, one that more immediately contains ourselves, and from which we also stand to learn ever so much about our place in the nature of things. That's the mental flip, at least, the moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and today we're fixing our sights on some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around the astronomer. So let's turn our attention to a different kind of ancient light – our history here on Earth. On February 15, 1898, the USS Maine, a Navy ship sent to Cuba to protect U.S. interests, exploded in Havana Harbor, and the event set off the Spanish-American War, in which the U.S. sided with Cubans rebelling against Spanish colonial rule. While atrocities were being committed by Spanish colonizers, the U.S. also did not miss its opportunity in the middle of this conflict to strengthen its own holdings in both the Caribbean region and various key routes along the Pacific. One of those new holdings had nothing directly to do with Cuba, but since the Hawaiian archipelago was well situated to serve as a mid-Pacific fueling port, its annexation was deemed essential and enacted by joint resolution in July. This was all happening, mind you, just a year after the Hawaiian Patriotic League had successfully petitioned the U.S. Congress not to allow a treaty of annexation to go forward, and only five years after a group of U.S. businessmen had overthrown the last monarch of Hawaii, Queen Liliuokalani. Natives of Hawaii would not regain any control over their sacred lands again until 1959, when the U.S. government ceded the territory to the state of Hawaii, which was supposed to hold these lands in trust for its indigenous peoples, Kanaka Maoli. The very next year, though, a tsunami hit, devastating the region and the city of Hilo. The Chamber of Commerce, hoping for the funds and related resources to rebuild, took the opportunity to reach out to international universities with thriving astronomy departments. One of the territory's holdings was a massive extinct volcano, some 4,200 metres above sea level at its summit, Mona Kea. Perhaps someone would like to come and build a telescope on top of it? Some of you may have guessed the moment I mentioned Mauna where this astronomy story was going, but there's a reason I didn't start by telling you about the 30-meter telescope project, which is considered to be one of the most exciting recent ventures in practical astronomy, an attempt to build one of the largest ground-based observatories in the world, to peer better than ever before into distant echoes of the young universe, Back to a time when the first heavy elements were just forming and when light sources emerged and when galaxies first assembled into what would become today's best-known structures. The TMT was going to give us better readings on exoplanets, deepen our spectroscopic understanding of the early universe and offer us more insights into the life cycle of black holes. The TMT project, in other words, was going to be for all of us, to help all of us. The fresh wealth of cosmic knowledge it was going to give us was for humanity, for everyone. But then why was the project, which settled on the Mona site in 2009 and broke ground in 2014, meeting with such fierce resistance, along with so many setbacks, delays, and threats of shutdown every step of the way? Ah yes, because of yet another land rights controversy involving indigenous groups. Exasperated sigh, weary shake of the head, same old, same old. Or at least, so go, the knee-jerk responses of many Westerners to issues like this. The problem is that when we tell this story by starting with the telescope and the astronomers, talking first about all the cool new things this ambitious science project stands to teach us about the ancient universe, and then position Indigenous groups as after-the-fact reactionaries, we've already twisted the situation to reinforce ideas about the purity of science as a practical pursuit that do not hold up to scrutiny. Many narratives around this issue treat the astronomers as purely rational outsiders, blameless casualties in a heated culture war between colonizers and the colonized that surely has nothing to do with the institution of astronomy itself. Others take a different but no less divisive tack, pinning the astronomers here as champions of empiricism and reason Fighting to take humanity forward against the relentless tide of superstition. People, that is, halting progress with their primitive animist claims that Monarchia holds sacred sites to which this telescope will deny them access. We rarely manipulate our stories this way with conscious intent. It's just that the allure of science, of empirical authority, emphasis on authority, makes it very easy to forget our own fallibility. We forget, that is, that while the corrective mechanisms of the scientific method can and do reduce bias over time, the people themselves who engage with scientific practices in any given moment are never going to be rid of bias entirely. There are reasons we choose to pursue one line of research over another, and why certain lines of research are better funded than others, and why certain disciplinary findings attract us more than others. We're simply human, and being involved in the sciences does not make us any less so. Irrespective of intention, though, our narrative biases can still have serious consequences. In the case of Monarchia, even attempts to find commonalities on the part of scientific groups from Western industrial nations have often proven deeply condescending to local beliefs. In a 2020 article for The Wire, Astronomers May Not Like It But Astronomy and Colonialism Have a Shared History, Nithyanand Rao notes two such attempts at reconciliation that simply do not work, because they fail to address underlying biases on the parts of outsiders. One is a science center and planetarium program that promotes the idea that contemporary astronomy developments on the island are related to ongoing traditions of Hawaiian wayfinding the kind carried forward from Polynesian ancestors, first looking to the stars. It's a clever attempt at integration, but its attempt at convergence between traditions is pointedly one-sided. There's simply nothing spiritual about dropping a giant scientific facility atop sites of sacred worship related to native Hawaiians' beliefs that the mountain is both elder sibling and ancestor to them all. The other example comes from the TMTE project's own webpage, which polled visitors about the possibility of quote unquote science and quote unquote Hawaiian culture coexisting, as if the two are mutually exclusive, as if science is itself without culture, and Hawaiian culture bereft of scientific knowledge. For Rao, these were half-hearted attempts at compromise that did not reveal any interest in narrative change from within. By telling the story of this telescope the other way, though, I think it becomes a little clearer that native Hawaiians have been dealing with other people claiming local sacred land for their own ostensibly grand purposes for a very long time. In 1898, it was as part of a U.S. war effort bolstered by domestic beliefs that the Spanish were committing atrocities in Cuba. In the early 1960s, it was to create income streams to rebuild the urban landscape after a tsunami, and from the late 2000s on, it's been in the name of deep space scientific research for the betterment of all humankind. Nor have native Hawaiians been passive at any juncture in this history. After all, they did successfully petition against that first U.S. attempt to pass a treaty of annexation in 1897, and then in the 1960s when international groups started setting up observatories and native Hawaiians lost access to various sites of memorial and worship, they protested those installations too. There's nothing new then about the sheer act of protest against the TMT in recent years. The only difference is that, in the 21st century, word of a protest tends to travel faster and one can gain allies to the cause far quicker thanks to, ironically enough, other benefits of Western industrial scientific advancement, satellite technology, the internet, social media. And so, the question is not in fact whether science and Hawaiian culture can coexist, they already do our whole world is permeated by a scientific practice that has been shaped by political and economic interests so widespread and long-standing that it's now often difficult to recognize them for what they are, that is, as just one of many possible arrangements of the world and its communities. Instead, the question becomes, How can we better use all these recent and incredible advancements to provide more agency to the people that our current scientific arrangements have harmed along the way? And if not by half-heartedly humoring other spiritual beliefs, then how? This both is and isn't a difficult question for astronomy, a discipline that has a long history in the Western world of being seen as requiring its practitioners to work well outside the common fray toiling away in solitude at odd and relentless hours to keep a dutiful record of the heavens. Astronomers, that is, have also received their own share of mockery and derision in the past for setting their heads and dreams above even the highest clouds, instead of here on Earth. Right now, the astronomer's story of scientific progress runs pretty neatly alongside many stories of colonialism and its local trespasses. But it doesn't have to. The Monarchia site may very well be a lost cause, as international astronomy communities consider alternate sites and projects in response to local protests. But in the future, if we really want to believe that the scientific wonder we're pursuing is quote-unquote for everyone, we might benefit from leaning deeper into the histories of science that give us a common vocabulary for struggle, estrangement, and dismissal, with many marginalized cultures in the world today. Because no, a Polynesian wayfinder and a Western astronomer are not the same thing. But at the heart of both indigenous concerns and modern cosmology is a shared interest in carrying forth key insights from the past. And both interest groups have met with many points of serious struggle along the way. When the international scientific community forms search committees for new facility sites and outlines specific approaches to local labour acquisition and project promotion, the tendency is to rely on existing processes for land acquisition and use, even when we know full well that these processes have long histories of oppression built in. But we can make other choices. We can form search committees that significantly factor in the possibility for collaborative storytelling around the project with local interest groups. This isn't just about answering the question, will this project create jobs for local residents, but also, will this project site exist in isolation from its local community, or will it increase the possibility of creating a distinct and culturally meaningful scientific conversation here? Because if the information that any given observatory acquires about the universe really is for everyone, for the benefit of humanity as a whole, then its success cannot be measured solely in the papers produced by scientists making use of its quantifiable findings. Rather, it will be in the staying power and inclusivity of the stories that surrounding cultures tell about this quest for new information. Together as a wide range of demographics with histories of trauma and exclusion to overcome, that we truly learn how much, in our eagerness to understand the greater cosmos, we're really doing any of this in service to the microcosm we call home. This has been Global Humanist Chop Talk, podcast edition, with M. L. Clark, New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Chop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Cabalistic Village on SoundCloud, and other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, Please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving.